Amen. That was a really good amen. Like, I never comment on the amens. That was a good one. Let it be. Hey, would you stay standing for the reading of God's word? You're already standing. 2 Samuel uh, 16 and 17. We've got some ground to cover today. Bend your knees. We'll trust the Lord. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. With a couple donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine, the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, where's where's your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For this is what he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. And then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. When David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei. All right, Shimei. Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with that one. The son of Gera, and as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left, and Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take his head off. But the king said, what have I had to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and said to all of his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the road opposite the hillside and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived, weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your, with, um, why did you not go with your friend? And he said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, all right, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they set a tent, a tent, a tent up for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. 
so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Absalom said, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he was, he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring back all the people to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And after, the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given you is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his mighty men and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He won't spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears of it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as a sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle and pray. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, don't stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting in Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell to King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim who had a well in his courtyard and they went down into it and the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, where are Ahimez and Jonathan? And the woman said, they've gone over the brook of water. Then when they had sought and couldn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David, and they said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so as Ahithophel counseled against you. And then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. 
Massa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, the Ammonites, and Mashir, the son of Amiel from Lodebar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rohelim, That is pure grace. <laughs> Brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. This is the words of the Lord <laughs> for this morning. You can be seated. <laughs> Well, good morning, church. Thank you for your kindness as I read through that passage. Excited to get into it this morning. If you have your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to do 16 and 17 today. Hopefully you'll see why it has a common theme, and we're going to break that down in our time together. My name is Scott, by the way. I'm the lead pastor here, and so if you're new with us, I just personally want to say welcome. Uh, Delighted, delighted that you're spending your morning with us and uh, Hope to serve you well by getting into God's word. We've already sung about the Lord and just delighted to have you. If there's anything I can do for you, I usually hang out at the lobby uh, after services, so come say hi. My name is Scott. Sometimes that's forgotten. No worries. I'll tell you again. You can just call me Scott. Um, five o'clock tonight, guys. Second Sunday, right? Yeah. So, so let's get there and let's pray. I need it and I need you guys to help me pray, right? And I want to pray with you guys. And this is the place where our church comes together and um, does the work that God has graciously allowed us to participate in, to be a part of what he's doing in and through the church. And so we get to seek him, and if we're a disciple-making church, then prayer is the furnace that keeps all the work going. So five o'clock, back in this room, plus lights out leadership and preaching tonight by our very own Chris Hill. Okay, one of our 6'4 interns, it's going to be fantastic, but would you come, would you join us so that we don't merely talk about prayer being something we do, but we actually pray together. Five o'clock, second Sunday, every second Sunday, okay? All right, title of the message this morning, The Solace of Sovereignty. The Solace of Sovereignty. It's been a while. But do you remember when the Lord said to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, and your house, this is the Lord speaking, and your kingdom, he's speaking to David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Then you read these chapters. And you're wondering if the kingdom of David will even make it out of chapter 17. In chapter 16 and 17, you have an onslaught of threats to the kingdom and to God's appointed king, who admittedly is in a weird spot, right? There is judgment that God is enacting on King David because of his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, and yet at the same time, he's still God's appointed king. 
In other words, if you mess with God's appointed king, you mess with God. Nothing has changed despite David's sin, and yet we're given this idea that the enemy looks like they're going to prevail, and isn't that a recurring theme in the Christian's life? You ever felt that way? My dad suddenly and tragically died in 2019, like a week before, no, after we got into the building, and probably never in my life did I sense that the enemy was prevailing more than I did in that moment. We just celebrated, what, like 25 baptisms last week? And see, in my heart and mind, it was like my dad was going to get in those waters at some point. You know that? You hear my voice? Sometimes it feels like the enemy is prevailing, right? And have no confidence whatsoever that my dad is with the Lord. Some of you know that. Some of you feel that as a parent. You've been praying and leading your kid, and he is walking away, or she is walking away from the Lord. And maybe they're still with us, but you feel like the enemy is winning. You feel like that gospel that you're preaching is just not quite powerful enough. That maybe if you could just say it better, there's just, it feels like, man, you're trying so hard. You look at our society, and it's like, are there even wheels left on it? Like we say the wheels are falling off, but it's more like the whole thing is coming apart. And it feels worse than ever. It could be me. Some of y'all have lived longer, but it, it definitely can feel that way. And so the question is, what, what is our comfort? What is our solace? What, what, what hems us in to hope in the midst of those times that it feels like the kingdom is just losing to the enemy, when it just doesn't seem, it seems like it's tottering. Well, what's our confidence in that moment? And I, I want to talk about that. When God's kingdom seems undermined, when it seems under attack, when we need confidence to know that the kingdom of God is going to persevere, here's where we ought to stake our hope and stake our claim. God is sovereign. That's where we need to stake our hope. God is sovereign. And I will borrow the words from Job 42, verse 2, and therefore no purpose of his can be thwarted. He is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And so I want to give you this big idea for today and then I want to see it flesh out, give you three thoughts that you can take solace in today in God's sovereignty. But before that, let me get to the big idea. God's sovereignty is a great solace, thank comfort to me, in that no sin or sinner can thwart God's kingdom plans, okay? Which is good news on two sides. One, if there's a rebellious sin or sinner that, well, sin is rebellious always. If there's a rebellious sinner that is trying to press against the Lord, here's the good news. They're going to be a stat on God's, for God's glory in one way or another way, okay? They're either going to be a stat of God's glory because no sinner can run away from God's mercy <laughs> because God's a pursuing God. And if God is so inclined to save that individual, he will draw that person to himself. But also, if that person persists in their rebellion, God will also bring glory to himself in bringing judgment and justice to the one who rebels against him. No sin and no sinner can thwart God's kingdom plans. But the good news is because of Jesus Christ, if you don't know Jesus by faith in him, you can be a part of God's kingdom plans. So... Take solace then in three thoughts regarding God's sovereignty. I'll give you them and then we'll break them down. Number one, enemies are stuck sovereignly fulfilling God's will. I love that one. They think they walk in all this freedom. I'm telling you what right now, the enemies of God are stuck doing whatever God's will is. That's hope today. Number two, 
everything is encompassed in God's sovereignty. Everything. Even when you don't see it, even when it seems so natural, run of play in your life. And number three, encouragement results when sovereignty is seen. When you see God coming through on his promises that no purpose of his can be thwarted. When you see God coming through and building his kingdom. Like last week, how many needed last week's baptism? Isn't it just like every, I need that all the time. Like, I just need to see that God's still saving people. Anyone else in the house yesterday? Like, I need it. I know we're coming for them, but I, I'll be honest, I'm a little self. I'm, I'm coming for me. Like, I just need to know that dead people are still coming to life in Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Give me more of that, which is actually where we're going. But that's more fun uh, to be had in the future. But we may or may not be moving towards monthly baptisms instead of quarterly. So praise God for that. Now. Don't tell the 11 I told you that, because I won't guarantee that I'll tell the 11 since that wasn't in my notes. Okay, so point one, <laughs> enemies are sovereignly stuck fulfilling God's will and all God's people said, come on, come on. All right, so where are we at? Let me give you the big picture gospel implications. David's in exile, correct? One person said, yep, that's enough for me. Everyone else is taking notes, which I've now come to understand. David has departed from the land, and that continues on all the way to 16, verse 14. And we said last week that that was foreshadowing the movement of Jesus, who would walk the same path, ascend the same mount. So therefore, we could describe Jesus suffering in death as a kind of exile itself. That like David, who left Remember, he left to save people from destruction, right? If he had stayed in the city, what would happen? They would have brought the sword and all these people would have been destroyed. So like David, who left to save people from destruction, the better son of David, Jesus, suffered in exile on a cross in our place for our sin to preserve us from destruction to preserve anyone from destruction who would call out to Jesus and put their faith in him. And he, through him, through his work, brings us to God. So that exile, of which Jesus' death foreshadows from this place, is taking part. Chapter 15 was a lot of David's friends coming to play. Chapter 16 is about David's enemies coming to play. And all of this chapter... All of it points to this central truth that I want to make sure we pound home as I show you it in three different ways. That every evil scheme of every enemy of God only ever ends up fulfilling God's word. That's awesome. Whether it's Ziba's deception or Shimei's cursing, I don't know how to say that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Ahithophel's counsel that really is more betrayal. So whatever scheme of the enemy, all of it is only ever ending up fulfilling God's word. Everything that is meant to overthrow or undermine God's plans only ever become fodder for God's judgment. Every enemy that stands up against the Lord Jesus Christ only becomes part of Jesus' footstool in the end. Psalm 110. 
So we see this playing out. Now, theologically, what we need to know about our section is that everything in chapters 13 to 20 of 2 Samuel is controlled by 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 to 12. Namely, that line about God's judgment on David that he would bring a sword to his household, remember? So the entire narrative is controlled by God's word. God's word said that it would be a sword would come, and guess what's happened? It's tearing it up in a whole bunch of different ways. And so it looks like the enemy's winning. But the Lord's merely fulfilling his word. Even though this text depicts judgment upon the king, the betrayers are ultimately in the king's hand, the Lord himself. They are sovereignly stuck, to borrow the words of Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 4, they are sovereignly stuck to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. By the way, God's hand and God's plan predestining to take place was a mention about Jesus' death. When the nations, represented by Pontius Pilate and Herod, put him to condemnation and to death, this was ultimately God's hand at work to save a people for himself. Friends, this is the ultimate frustration. You can rage all you want against God's kingdom, but the enemies are sovereignly stuck fulfilling his will. What solace that is in the presence of enemies. So let me show you this. Three different examples, Zeba, Shimei, and Ahithophel. First one, Zeba, okay? We get into this section in verses one to four, and you've got this Sauline servant who is taking care of Mephibosheth. Now, he seems like a really good guy, and it's kind of like the ice cream man when he comes down your street. He always comes at the right time, right? You're like, yes, all right? And you have to run in and convince mom for $2. Now it's probably like $5. It was $2 back in the day, and, and he just is there. And so this guy just comes through with his little, you know, he's got his bell and is like, oh, did you want an ice cold water out in the middle of exile in the desert? And he just seems like such a nice guy. The guy is a total opportunist. He's leveraging the weariness of David in a particular moment with a fabricated story about Mephibosheth, who was actually on David's side, basically saying, first of all, David's like, I don't even know why you're here. You're supposed to be taking care of Mephibosheth. By the way, where is he? And he goes, well, here's the thing. He's in Jerusalem because he's hoping you'll get overthrown. And that the Saulite kingdom will reestablish itself again. And he's really hoping for that. And David being as weary as he was and unable to verify the story gets upset. And in a rash judgment, in a moment of weakness, transfers all the blessing of Mephibosheth to who? Ziba. And when he pays homage, this is it, right? This is deception at its finest. And he gets all of this caught up and, and, and so, so what's going on here? How do we know he's lying about Mephibosheth in the first place? Well, we don't know yet because we haven't got to 2 Samuel 19, but 2 Samuel 19, verses 24 to 30, you see Mephibosheth's heart as he feels slandered by Ziba over these words that were shared that end up getting everything transitioned from Mephibosheth to Ziba. So it's a complete shady move, and you go, man, what's going on here, and how do we see this playing out? Well, here's what I would just say. We have to understand that when we sin, there are unexpected consequences of sin's effects. 
There are unexpected consequences of sin's effects, and sin affects others unknowingly. Like when you sin, you won't even, you'll be surprised to even understand how it could possibly affect this person or this relationship, and yet somehow sin is so nasty and so destructive, it does that. And here's a good example of that. David, because of his sin back in chapter 11, could have never imagined this would be one of the ways it would take place in this rash judgment, and yet this is how sin works. It permeates in ways into places you would never expect, and David's having to deal with that, and all of that, of course, is God fulfilling his word to be, bring judgment on David for the consequences of his sin. But it's a sad story for Mephibosheth. Now, then he's cursed by Shimei, which he sounds French or it sounds like a dance move. I just, I don't know. I have to mentally move past that. <laughs> Nonetheless, he's Jewish he is from the line of Saul as well, and he is cursing, right? He's got rocks, and he's got words for David, and he's accusing David, right, in verses 7 of 8, you are a man of blood, right, which, which was true, but he accuses him of being a man of blood for the deaths of Abner and Ishbosheth. Now, he doesn't say that specifically, but he's accusing him in verse 8 of the blood that has been shed in the house of Saul. So he's not talking about Uriah specifically. He's got problems about other things that David, we know from earlier in 2 Samuel, didn't have anything to do with, and yet he's calling him to account. He's saying, listen, all this is taking place because the Lord is avenging your sin and your bloodshed on you. And so Absalom's getting raised up because of the consequences of your sin. And so he just keeps talking. By the way, I love how far he talks. Far enough to be heard but not, not close enough to get, you know, in a word face-to-face. You know what I'm saying? On the other side in verse 13, he's like, hey, man, you, uh, you're gonna, this is the Lord avenging you, man. All right, easy, you know? Like, I mean, he's keeping his distance here, and he's shouting, and he's just nonstop talking. You know, that person just can't stop. And then uh, David's servant's like, um, you want me to just, like, cut his head off? Right? Because people without heads don't talk as much. And, and it's kind of very Peter reminiscent. You guys remember? He's like, hey, um, let, let me do the work and I'll establish the kingdom with this sword. And he slices off the high priest's ear, right? There's like a vibe of that where there's something under the surface of this isn't how the kingdom is going to come. In fact, David has a very interesting scenario here, and it shows David's humble heart. So this, the consequences of sin is humbling David. Sometimes it really stinks, like last week we talked about how just rough it is to sit in the consequences of your sin, but when you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know that all things work out for your good, then even the consequences of your sin do good things in your life. They humble you because you're like, you know what, I deserve all of this and far more than that. And so he goes to his servant, don't, don't, don't stop him. This may be exactly what the Lord wants him to do. In fact, he's confident of it. As confident as, as Shimei was about the plan, David's like, he's only doing this because Yahweh told him to do it. And so what I'd rather do is I'd rather not chop his head off. I'd rather trust the Lord. Because solving the problem, so here's the thing, right? So, um, 
when you're, so the equivalent, hopefully you're not chopping a preacher's head off, but it's like that person that hears the preacher preaching and they're like, la, 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 I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it. I, I just, or they'll walk out, you know, in a service because they're like, I said, I don't want to hear any of that stuff. And there's, there's, you're like, let me just solve it that way. Then you don't have to listen to that anymore, David. You don't have to listen to that fact that you're, 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 you're a sinner. You don't have to listen to the fact that you're under the judgment of God. You don't have to listen to that, that, that the wrath of God abides on you if you haven't trusted in Christ. And so just, just walk out and get, get, forget all of it. Do you see how that compares a little bit? Just, just be done with it. And David says, no, I, I'd rather sit in it. And you know what I'd rather do? Because I know God to be who he is. I'd rather trust him that he might be merciful to me than cut out the voice telling me that I'm a sinner. I'd rather lean into God because I know who God is. Our God is a merciful God. Here's even how it's said. It's actually verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done. It really is the wrong done by me. It says to me in the ESV. I think it's better. I'd rather go to the Lord and trust the Lord will look on the wrong done by me and repay me with good first cursing. In other words, I would rather trust the Lord. I deserve what has come upon me is what he's saying. Let him do what seems good to him. But here's the thing. I want to plead with the Lord that he would reverse the curse. Oh, loved ones, but in fact he has, hasn't he? See, we can run away from hearing about the fact that before God and apart from Christ, we are sinners deserving of God's judgment. And we can just go, la, 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 I don't want to hear that. Or you can receive that as the truth of what's actual reality. And then plead to the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, who became a curse for you so that you could be redeemed from the curse of the law in him. That is our God. I'd rather lean into him with the full weight of who I am before him than walk away going la, la, la and living in a fantasy world. That sounds like God's will, if I'm uh, not mistaken. Sovereignly stuck. Just yeah. Third enemy, betrayed by Ahithophel. Okay, 15 to 23, betrayed by Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel is the Judas Iscariot of 2 Samuel. Anyone picking that up? When he got hung, in, or hung himself in chapter 17, you're like, right? I got three nods, so I'm like, okay, I'm good. That's all I need. Three is it. He sells out David, becomes a conspirator with Absalom. David's prayer, remember, was that God would, do you remember, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness, and then Hushai turns up, and he's supposed to be this answer to prayer, and he really needs to be, because if Hushai can't come through in this moment, Absalom has set himself up in Jerusalem with his people. This is not looking good for his kingdom, for David's kingdom, like not, not, not at all. And so in comes Hushai in verses 15 to 19 with this hearty A- Men, long live the king, long live the king. Which, by the way, all of this is kind of funny because it speaks vaguely enough. Like, is he talking about Absalom or is he talking about David? Now, Absalom is so full of himself, he's just glad for the praise. He's like, come on, right? No, don't. Yes, do. He's very excited, believes it's about him. 
And, and so Hushai's making himself comfortable in Absalom's presence. Seems like he's in this. Like, really, are you in it for me? Who else would I serve? You're the king's son. And then we get to Ahithophel's advice. And we'll kind of break it up into two pieces. We'll finish with advice one at the end of chapter 16, beginning in verse 20. What's his advice? He goes, listen, here's what you should do. You need to set up a conjugal station on the roof. That'll teach David. We're going to pitch you a tent. And remember the concubines he left, David left when he fled? Remember I said there was going to be a problem there? Guess who the tent's going to be used with? Absalom, why don't you go up? We'll pitch a tent on the roof. By the way, what roof is that? Hmm. We're going to pitch a tent on the roof, and you're going to have all of his concubines come in, and you're going to just, well, right? And, uh, that's going to be your, it's, I mean, it, we know this is kind of smack talk, right? It's like, you, you do that, and it's over. You're severing any possibility of reconciliation. You are um, galvanizing your troops. They're like, yeah, look at that guy. Look how tough he is. He's a conqueror. And, uh, and it's really saying that you're here to play. So, so now it's on, right? Now it's on. And yet, the careful reader of the book of 2 Samuel would know and understand that while it seems like all of this is triumphant for Absalom, this is only fulfilling God's word. Can I read it for you out of 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11 and 12? Here's what God said. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel. Put it up. Have it done. A spectacle for the people. Just like God's word said. So here, there's a sense in which, guys, we need to see what's going on and constantly be recognizing God's sovereignty behind it all. That God's enemies are sovereignly stuck fulfilling his word. You want to fast forward to the Judas of the New Testament. You remember when God gives, uh, excuse me, Judas acts in such a way to wickedly overthrow Jesus? Do you remember this? To give them, to give him away to the authorities? We know because of Acts chapter 2, the way Peter preached, and because of Acts chapter 4, that though Jesus was handed over to be crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, it was God's definite plan and foreknowledge that put him there. And so while the enemy was celebrating the fact that they thought they had overdone Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus the King of the Jews, they thought they had ruined the plan and they ended up fulfilling it. Jesus Christ died and in that death and resurrection, new life came, not just for the nation of Israel, but the true Israel of God, all who would trust in Jesus Christ by faith alone, all who would run after him and put their faith, confidence, trust, everything in Jesus. His life for my life, his death in my place, his resurrection, I have life in him. It's so good. I'm encouraged just seeing this play out. Here's another thing I want you to see in chapter 17. Everything, number two, is encompassed in God's secret sovereignty. Everything is encompassed in God's secret sovereignty.
Because the way sovereignty plays in our lives, it's so invisible. You don't like overtly see it often. So God's not obvious, but he's not absent either. And figuring out how that plays out is, is interesting. So if I can, I, I'm, I'm just giving you a little intro to finish writing the point down because i got to get your eyes to verse 14 because this entire section hems, or hangs together on verse 14. And so um, let me show you this. Verse 14 in chapter 17 says this, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So all this stuff is going to play out in these 14 verses, and, and the actors in the story don't know what we know. Make sense? Like, if you're in it, you don't know. It wasn't like the Lord spoke from heaven and said that. The writer is giving us an in as the receivers of the word of God to know that what's playing out here is nothing more than the Lord ordaining to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. So it all plays out because what? The Lord ordained that this would go down. Now, it all is so interesting because it, like I said, it plays out so naturally. It seems even the word would be coincidental. So let's go back to verse 23 of chapter 16. Ahithophel's, listening to Ahithophel's counsel was like, almost like the word of God on level. It's like a pastor using a Spurgeon quote, right? It's almost inspired. You just quote Spurgeon and now everything's okay. Or is that, I just feel like that's how it is sometimes, okay? This is like Spurgeon and Ahithophel, okay? You quote Ahithophel, you're like, it's kind of Spurgeon-esque. I mean, here's what he said on the issue, so I think that settles it. Almost, thus saith the Lord. So when you have a guy like that, you're not often going for second opinions on the counsel he gives you. And yet, wouldn't you know it? Of all the times... That Absalom would want to get a second opinion. <laughs> Coincidence, I guess. He asks for a second opinion in this moment on this issue, with advice, by the way, up to verse 4, that the elders all agreed was good advice. Can I help you with this? Listen, this is happening in our lives all of the time, but you don't see it, but it's written in the scriptures to remind us this is how the Lord works for the Lord ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. So to you, it looks like coincidence. By the way, how many are just like, come on, don't say coincidence. I know, I know, I know, I know. We, we believe in providence. We believe in a God who is seeing to his sovereign will being fulfilled. Providence is God's seeing to in the world, playing out through natural proclivities, personalities, orders of situations, leveraging means even in their natural state as it would seem to us to fulfill and accomplish his work. So it's so invisible and yet it's so stunning and all of this is coming together. So, so what's happening? Well, the advice comes in. Um, He's got some advice in verses 1 to 4 that seems good to Absalom. Ahithophel says, give me 12,000 men. Here's how it'll go. We'll get to David before his troops can get organized. This will be a good thing. I will go after just David. I will kill him alone. And when I do, because they're not organized, they're going to kind of get into a panic. 
And then I think we'll be able to leverage the rest of them to come and join your side so we don't have this huge massacre. I think I can just take out David and preserve everyone else and put them in your good graces, O king. And the elders, the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all of the elders. See, but if it ended there, then the council of Ahithophel wouldn't have been thwarted. Verse 5. <laughs> then Absalom said, call Hushai. Why? You've got an airtight plan. You like what was said. And he brings in Hushai anyway to get a second opinion. Listen, when you have like a bone that's broken or some sort of a, and you want to see a second doctor, I get it. But when the plan seems good and clear and obvious and smart and you go for something... This just doesn't seem to make sense. And yet it's in the run of play. And so Hushai shares, interestingly, which gives, I'm sorry, uh, Absalom shares Ahithophel's plan with Hushai, who now has a leg up because he knows Ahithophel's plan. So all he has to do is poke a few holes in Ahithophel's plan, and boom, he's got a situation. Now, he plays this out, and he starts going, well, listen, um, Anyone who's anyone, logically, that's thinking about this is crazy if they believe that you can just walk up and David will be there sleeping and you can kill him because he'll be amongst his people. David is a smart warrior. He's not going to be with his people. You're going to show up. He's not going to be there. Plus, if you show up and it doesn't go well and they get you bad first, then everyone's going to start freaking out, right? That's what he says in verses 8 and 9. Everyone is going to start freaking out. So as a precautionary measure, we want to make sure we steer away from that for the people's hearts will melt with fear because, again, he is a valiant man. And then this is what I love about this plan because it plays out so naturally. The way Hushai gets Absalom to listen to his plan is he appeals to his vanity and his pride. And God leverages it to accomplish his will. Scratch 12,000 men. What if we got the multitudes of Israel to help you? And what if the center of that army was you and all your pomp and glory, and you led the people into battle? He's like, Ahithophel's out. I like this guy. You mean I can? He's like, I can just see it in the headlines the next day, right? He's pitching the whole thing. He's like, mm-hmm. He's like, that, that will go viral on social media. We do that. You are the man. Sign me up for that. And so he leverages all of this is playing out so naturally, appealing to people's own vices, own sin proclivities, and, and he takes it. He takes the advice of Hushai and decides in verse 14 that the counsel is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Why? For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. So this can all seem so coincidental, but it's providential, right? That this is invisible, but undeniable, sovereign work of God at hand. This is a subtle reminder that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, and he leverages everything. There's not a bunch of special stuff that comes in here. It's conversation, it's strategic planning. It's Hushai's plan. We can give a lot of credit to people when we see them have success in a certain context, but we have to remember the God who is behind that. 
who sometimes will grant success and other times will grant failure. But of course, he sees the plan. He knows what he's looking to accomplish. And he can lever leverage all of that in a way that can bring about and accomplish what he set out to do. And so let me, let me describe how this happens in our life. There are, these people in the story weren't told what we are, and yet it's true of us that nothing is outside of God's realm of secret sovereignty. God is working in our lives in, over, and through normal human processes and proclivities. Nothing is off limits for God. There is no maverick anything in the universe that God doesn't have sovereign sway over. And so we may plan our steps, but the Lord establishes those steps. He directs those steps. And sometimes when we take a step or a plan, he blesses it and you keep going forward in that. But how many times have you took a step on a plan and he's went, Shh. Now we could all give Hushai all the praise or we could praise the God that causes king's hearts to move like a stream of water wherever he wishes. And so this is here for us to say, I know you see your life from an X's and O's perspective, from a merely what you see perspective, but you have to look to the God who is unseen, who is invisibly but undeniably at work to fulfill his purposes. And for the one who is in Christ, again, for our good, being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ and that Jesus might be preeminent in everything. And then he finishes with this. Number three, encouragement results when sovereignty is seen. Encouragement results when sovereignty is seen. So one of the things I think we need to be mindful of is looking for God at work, okay? He is, and, and I think we do this when we see, for example, one of the most obvious ways we do this is we pray and God does what? He answers, right? And when he answers, it's like he is at work in the circumstance. He is clearly moving and doing what's pleasing to him. And so when these small signs of his secret sovereignty are seen by us, they can be huge encouragements to keep us enduring, or in David's sense, to keep him enduring even in the midst of exile. And so what we have is David's prayer being answered in chapter 15 about confusing, thwarting the counsel of Ahithophel, and now we have stories about how Yahweh's servant David is protected. So here's what I would say. While the kingdom is under attack, here's what we also need to see, and it keeps us encouraged, the kingdom is also under protection. While the kingdom is under attack, the kingdom is also simultaneously under protection. While the kingdom is under attack today, the kingdom is also under protection, and we ought to take encouragement when we see that protection play out. So what do we have? Verses 15 to 23, we have this small story about how Hushai's news finally reaches David. Now, here's the issue. Hushai's news, he, he didn't know what Absalom was going to pick, even though it was pleasing what Hushai had said. He leaves and goes to try to get the news to the priest, so the priests get the news to David. But he assumes that he's going to take Ahithophel's advice, because when you're Spurgeon-esque on that almost inherent level, you go with that plan. So he takes that back. He says, here's probably what's going to happen. I need David to get prepared for this. Go and tell him this, right? But they weren't supposed to be seen in the process. And as the priest's sons 
were what? Waiting in Enrogel, verse 17, they were spotted by a few of Absalom's servants who went back and told on them that they were found. And so they quickly had to come to a house of a man at Baharim, which by the way is where Shimei's from, the guy who was cursing. The same city will be the place that priests are preserved in a well, no less, by a Rahab-like woman who covers by faith these people in a well and covers the top so when they come looking for them, they can't seem to find them. And she says, they've moved on, they're gone, and they sought and couldn't find them, verse 20, and so they returned to Jerusalem. So then the men got out of the well. Here's God preserving his people. He's protecting his king. He preserved the messengers. They then get out of the well. They go to David. They share, here's the plan that Ahithophel wants to break out on you, and so you need to move in response. And so David hears the counsel. It gets to him. He arose and has all of his men cross the Jordan as a sign of protection. He was giving space between who was going to take him out now in light of the plan of Ahithophel that he knows he got him all across so that by, by daybreak not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. The kingdom may be under attack but it's also under protection. And then it says this, when Ahithophel got the news that his counsel wasn't followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his house. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Sound familiar? Jesus is betrayed by Judas, who goes and hangs himself, and all of his innards come out. It is a shameful, shameful way to die. What's the encouragement, though? What's the encouragement with Ahithophel's situation? That Ahithophel was the conspirator against David. And what we can learn from this situation is not simply that Ahithophel was rebelling against some king or some kingdom, but rather he was rebelling against Yahweh's king and Yahweh's kingdom. And his end is a sign of what will happen to all the enemies of Yahweh's king and kingdom. Give it enough time. Sooner or later, you cannot attack the kingdom of God without eventually being crushed by it. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, right? We either submit to Christ as the cornerstone or the stone will crush us. And how long-suffering and patient is God in the midst of that? That perhaps part of why he's enduring so much attack on the kingdom and yet protecting it is that so sinners like us who are attacking God's kingdom can be a part of it. Doesn't that say something of the mercy and kindness of God? Because God does not have to endure attack against his kingdom. He could shut it down. The minute that we sin even once, we deserve hell in that moment instantaneously. That is the only fair judgment for us. And he preserves and holds fast so that he can draw sinners to himself. Such mercy. And we'll close in this way. The last scene, he, it shifts east of the Jordan, David's protective route. And we're caught up on Absalom and his army and we see that he had picked Amasa instead of Joab, but then we see that David is well provided for here. 
that where it starts with these provisions that were kind of feigned loyalty to David at the beginning of chapter 16 ends with true, genuine provision from three Gentiles, no less, who provide David with food, which in some sense ultimately foreshadows the fact that it would later be Gentiles that would receive the exiled Jesus. But it was God's will for this reference of Shobai, I think I called them Shobi earlier, Mashir and Barzillai to be involved in the story of God's word, that their example of putting their own lives on the line, right? Absalom's the one gaining power. These guys are going out of their way into risk to serve Yahweh's true king. If there's not a parallel to Christian discipleship there, I don't know where we would ever find one. This is truly what the Christian does. Is Jesus Christ is king and there's a whole bunch of people that don't think he is. And we go out bringing him gifts and offering him our service because we know he's the most high king at risk to ourselves, but it is worth it when you're following Yahweh's king. And it's those people that will be preserved in the records of God's history that he is writing like we see right here. And so it's these little signs of sovereignty that show up and give big encouragement that we live right now at risk, serving the Most High King, but it is worth it, and God preserves those who serve him even at risk to themselves. Again, we are reminded that while God's kingdom is under attack, his sovereignty tells us and reminds us the kingdom is also under protection. So we're gonna come to the table and we're going to take communion because um, the enemy can't take our salvation. Because your salvation is not built off of work that you do. You don't maintain something. You know that it is grounded in the finished work of Jesus. That your assurance shouldn't as frequently come from whether you're nailing it in your quiet times. But whether or not Jesus Christ died and resurrected for you. And so we come to the table and we're reminded as believers that the wafer represents his body and the juice his blood. That this is Jesus' body for you and bloodshed for you that through him we might have life and confidence and assurance of eternal life and assurance of reconciled relationship with God. And so we come to the table not just to be reminded but to participate in that glorious good news of the gospel. And so if you're a believer in the G Lord Jesus Christ, this moment in worship is for you. And so I'm going to invite you as I go down to come up and grab the elements. They are double cups. You'll take one per person you're grabbing for. Go back to your seat and Pastor Ben will lead us in worship. Okay? So as I come down, you can come up.